Welcome back to the program. William James talked about the bitch goddess success and the sacrifices that it takes from us. Today, the same might be said of the pursuit of fame. Whether it's thousands of likes on Facebook, millions of Twitter followers, one's own reality show, or simply 24-7 adulation. Today, fame is both the holy grail and the ultimate aphrodisiac. But think how sad it would be to achieve fame only after you're gone. And the idea of posthumous success is what drives Richard Viteri's new novel, The Writer's Afterlife. Richard is a playwright, novelist, poet, screenwriter, TV writer, and actor. He's the author of the novel, The Third Miracle. And it is my pleasure to welcome Richard Viteri here to talk about The Writer's Afterlife. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for asking It does seem to be the ultimate irony, the ultimate kind of bad trick in our fame-obsessed world today to achieve fame after you're gone. Talk a little about that. Yeah, in in The Writer's Afterlife, my novel, uh, I did a lot of research, and I I found fame is fickle. Um, There were writers who were very famous during their lifetime that nobody reads today at all. And then there were writers, painters, you know, um, artists of all kinds, that become famous after they're dead. So I was really intrigued with the whole concept of fame. How does one become famous? Why does one become famous? What is the luck? You know, Machiavelli says that that fame is someone that you really need to know how to seduce, and it's a lot of work. And uh, I was really interested in that. So that's what happens to my character Tom Chillo in the novel when he dies suddenly at the age of 44 and finds himself in the writer's afterlife where he's allowed to meet Shakespeare and Emily Bronte and all the Eternals, but he can't hang out with them because he's not famous enough. I guess part of it is one of the things that, that's different today is that fame is an end in itself. I mean, there was a time that, that it was the work that was what mattered and the work would make you famous. Today we have people that are famous for just because they're famous. Yes, absolutely. And I think it, it, some wonderful American writer said it began with... Um, the um, the show on TV, the lady that spun the wheel. She became very famous, but she didn't do anything. Oh, Vanna White, and, right? Yes, Vanna White. Right. There you go. Thanks. And yeah, we are in in this wild culture, and because of the media, um, the idea of fame has been kind of um, changed. I mean, it has been around since you know since the the Greek uh, uh, Achilles wanted to be famous warrior. So fame is not unusual. It's how we become famous today that has changed. Talk a little bit about how it affects people in the arts differently, do you think? Oh, and that's a great question. Um, that's one of the reasons I, I wrote the novel. Um, it, it really is there because a lot of artists don't actually make a living. Um, doing. They have a thing now, the younger writers call it an artist, the survival job. And um, in my time, it was like, you know, you, you had the job you fell back on. Um, it's really different now because I think um, it's, it's more difficult in our economy for artists to survive. Um, the big money producing uh, is gone, all that big money that people would produce just to play. So it's very difficult to actually survive, let alone become famous. And because of the media and because of all the attention those people do become famous on TV... A lot of artists are obsessed with it. I think there's a whole generation right after me that became obsessed with being famous but didn't do the work. And um, I still believe, for me, that doing the work matters. Um, 
And, and in time, at least if you make a living as an artist, there's a potential for satisfaction. Fame is one of those, you know, one out of a thousand shots. But isn't part of the problem today is that the make a living section, the middle, is what's been hollowed out. You're either the starving artist or you've achieved huge fame and all the riches that go along with it. In so many ways, it reflects so many other parts of society where the middle is gone. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's exactly what's happening. You'll meet, I'll meet younger writers who the first thing they say is, I want to be, well, first they say, I want to be a writer, and then I say, what have you written? They haven't written anything yet. And then, I, then the second thing they say is, I want to be famous. And I just look at them and wonder, you know, I kind of see 20 years later, well, are you going to put the work into it? Are you going to be able to hop from the bottom to the top? Because like you just said, there's no middle ground anymore. Um, my new novel is published by a small press, Three Rooms Press. Um, they are now taking over the publishing world. A lot of authors are self-publishing. Um, so they're trying to compensate. You know, everyone is adjusting right now. I know filmmakers that make movies for, you know, on, on um, the Internet. Now, the problem is nobody sees them, but their creativity is there. It's a big question. Are, are we obsessed with everyone wanting to be creative? Is there any room for everyone like this? Are there, are there, is there an audience for this? And that is the big question. But you're right. The middle ground has been taken away from everyone. Talk a little bit about the story. You, you touched on it a moment ago as it evolves in the writer's afterlife. Well, Tom is one of those people that wants to be recognized for his work. And when he dies young, he finds out that he wasn't famous enough. He hadn't accomplished enough. I picked the age of 44 because Shakespeare had written his great plays from the age of 44 to the age of 52. So Tom goes to the afterlife where he meets those writers that are famous, um, and then he meets those in a place called the Valley of Those on the Verge, <laughs> thousands of people where he's going to have to spend eternity um, who were famous in their lifetimes but aren't famous anymore or are hoping to become famous after that. There's one caveat, though. He's given a chance to go back to life with one week that see if he can change his destiny. And, you know, actually the novel's not only about fame, but Tom learns more about love and death and mortality and passion while dead than he was when alive because he was working so hard to try to become famous. And it also goes to the heart of how fleeting fame is and how, how hollow it is in many respects. Yes, and that's a really good point, too. Um, I researched there was an author who had a million-dollar bestseller the same year that Fitzgerald wrote The Great Gatsby. And no one knows this other author's name, let alone his novels, yet we consider The Great Gatsby one of the great American novels that only sold, at that time when it came out, 1,500 copies. It went out of print by the time Fitzgerald was dead. So I love those ironies, and you're using the exact word, that Tom learns a lot, the irony of things, that sometimes the, sometimes the obsession with fame just isn't enough for an artist. There has to be something else. Um, but I have a lot of fun with it because in the afterlife, the authors get to spend time with the characters they've created. They get to spend time with the worlds they created. And I was really obsessed and interested in the writer's imagination. The one thing we don't really hear too much about anymore, the word imagination. And what's so interesting about it is the way, and you, you talked about it a few moments ago, the way the work often gets lost in all of this, that it become, the work becomes almost secondary. Yeah, it's, it's a sad thing. 
because um, I do hear people, you know, they made one or two movies and go, why am I a famous director? And I tell them, listen, it's the body of your work that's going to matter. And in all honesty, in all the research, usually it takes about 50 years after the death of an artist, sometimes longer, for the world to either catch up or to recognize the greatness in that author, including Shakespeare. So that was another thing about the book. It was kind of, it, I wanted to write it for young writers and, and any kind of writer, even, even professional authors who question and have thoughts about this. And let me tell you, it happens. I have a lot of friends that are very successful. They're always questioning why that Broadway hit is a hit when they're not particularly fond of the writing. Um, we see TV. We see films. So writers are very competitive. And that's the other thing about the book. Tom Chichillo is not just competing with the writers of his day. He's competing with all the writers of all time right. because that's who's in our imagination. The other part of it today is that there is so much material out there. There is so much noise out there that fame becomes a way to compete, to just get your voice heard, even if you do care deeply about what it is you're doing. Yes, and that's what I was trying to say. There must be something like a million books published a year now, counting self-published books. 70% of them are self-published. How do you get your attention for your book? Um, and, you know, I studied Jack Bruzan's great book, From Dawn to Decadence, and he said artists become famous two ways. One, they create something that captures the imagination of the people of their time. And number two, a critic champions them. And that's what I was really interested in. Why do we talk about John Keats today, but we don't talk about, let's say, Ben Johnson, Shakespeare's competitor of the day? And what I found is it really is the work. It's not only what the work is about, but the style that the work was written in. And it doesn't mean that style doesn't come back. Um, so in that way, I think all artists are always competing with other artists and themselves to try to get an audience. In that sense, timing becomes so critical, which is so interesting. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Shakespeare wrote at a time when the English language was changing, and he put all those changes in his play. Um, you know, why did Van Gogh become famous? That's a whole other different conversation. But yes, um, Picasso was brilliant at figuring that out. Hemingway was brilliant at figuring that out. They were on the cutting edge. And I do believe that matters. And I also believe the thing you can't teach, because I do teach writing, is to tell someone what to write about. And that really is the big difference. I've been fortunate a lot of my work has been published and produced, and I have learned that for some reason I've touched on when I write something that's important to me, it seems to be important to other people. Um, Sometimes it just ends right there after the first production. Sometimes it gets published and goes on. But you're right, timing, and that's what the artist needs to be keyed into. And you can't teach that. That antenna is just something they're born with. To what extent has this changed the nature, if at all, of what constitutes art and how we define art today? That's a great question, too, because I think we're going through a lot of that. Um, the classics aren't taught anymore. The great storytellers aren't taught. However, when younger writers do find and see those classics, they recognize the greatness in them. I uh, blame the university for that. And also technology. You know, I'm a member of the Writers Guild and on the council on the Writers Guild East. And one thing we're learning is a lot of these young writers who write on the web don't get 
the kind of money that um, you know the older, more veteran writers have made. So will they be able to get a future in their pensions and that kind of thing? Um, too much stuff is handed for free. We also live in a culture of free, where nobody wants to pay for anything. You know, there, there, it's all interns, and writers have to learn how to support themselves. Because the more you support yourself, the more you give yourself time to write that next novel, that next play, that next screenplay that could change your life. That goes to the heart of what we were talking about before in terms of sort of a lessening of the work and of the value of the work as it's passed on for free out there. And that, that has an impact as well on the artist. Oh, yes, absolutely. Once again, you know, the technology and the Internet has changed that. You could put a movie or a web series on. Nobody will see it. You'll get your creative juices going. <sighs> it may be wonderful. And you, how do you promote it among all the noise, like you said? That is the new thing. I'm glad I'm not in that world. You know, I come from where you hold a book in your hand, and, you know, I have feature films where I could rent them and go see them. Um, you know, they played in movie theaters. You know, it's, uh, it's a different world. And, and television is helping. You know, television is definitely helping. There's more places for writers to make a living um, writing TV. There's more channels. It's a little tougher than it was when, you know, there were less writers competing. But, th but it does help a little. I think it's going to balance out. Not, not, not in a short time, but it will balance out eventually. How do you think that it will balance out? Well, I think what's going to happen is, um, these universities that are just sending, I think from what I read, 28,000 students are graduate to be actors every year. Well, we all know there's, not, there's no jobs for 28,000 actors. <laughs> um, probably about 15,000 writers and directors. I think eventually someone's going to smarten up and say, you know what, um, becoming a professional this isn't going to be that easy. Do I really have it? You know, um, Instead of waiting 10 years, and I see it, it's sad. I see artists in over 10 years, they can't make a living and it's gone. They try to do something else. That's been happening, you know, for, for so many years. So I think it's going to, I think eventually this obsession with being creative is going to go to another place. Um, and then there will be those artists. You know, I think it was George Lucas, actually, who said uh, to me at a party um, uh, that Francis Coppola had when he produced my movie, he said, not only does an artist need to be talented, but he also needs to know how to work the system. And that is the truth. That is Michelangelo had to do it, Caravaggio had to do it, and that is Western civilization. And eventually the system is going to just implode, and then artists will emerge. I don't know what kind of artist they'll be, but they will emerge. It's interesting. We're seeing it in a very different way in Silicon Valley, where the real creative talent, you know, they're becoming programmers and they're getting paid outrageous amounts of money. There you go. That's right. And that's creative. However, when you come to an artist, an artist for me is someone who takes an emotion, a passion, and makes it something objective that has absolutely no value other than itself. In other words, you can't drive it anywhere. You know, you can't do anything with it. That is really hard to do. I'm a storyteller. It took me years to learn how to tell a story. But I know I was born a storyteller because even when a kid, I was putting on plays in my backyard. I was writing poetry when I was a kid. Every actor that's become a well-known actor that I know was acting when they were kids. Um, so that, those, that, that thing, we have to go back to, if you're really an artist, are you willing to dedicate a lifetime? And that's what the writer's afterlife is about. Tom Chillo is dedicating his life 
but unfortunately he dies right at the point where he thinks he's going to start writing his great work. And that is what it's all about, the maturity of the artist. Um, you can't learn that in a school. I mean, when I teach, I've been told that the student needs to write two screenplays within a year. That's crazy. What do you have to say at 20 years old that's going to fill a screenplay, let alone two? Or write two plays at 20 years old? Can you learn the, the craft? Yes. That's what you do. You need to become an apprentice. Forget being an intern. Find a great artist that you admire and become their apprentice. That's how it used to be done. But the skill, and you touched on this a moment ago, and it may be the central core of everything that we're talking about, is that skill to be able to tell a story in one form or another, whether it's a movie, whether it's a novel, whether it's an app, whether it's Facebook or, or Twitter. The ability to tell a story, to create narrative, to create that emotion, as you say, out of something is really at the core of this. Yes. And that's what, the, when you meet a real artist, an artist, that an authentic artist, um, you know it from the, from the beginning. As soon as you see their work, you know, nothing about them will say it, but you'll see it in the work. And that's what usually impresses me. And I've met a handful of those people. There are a lot of pretenders out there. But those people are born with the need to create, whether, once again, it's storytelling, whether it's poetry, that they need to be around language, whether it's a filmmaker who just needs to look at things all the time, that is the way artists are seen, and that is the way an artist survives, by getting to the core of who they are. And that's another difficult thing, because you don't get the support, not in our culture, from family and from friends, um, maybe more today than when I was growing up, but usually you're kind of the outsider, and that actually works for the artist, because they need to be looking in. Richard Viteri, his novel is The Writer's Afterlife. It's just out from Three Rooms Press. Richard, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.